from the 809 Restaurant and Lounge in the heart of Inwood, New York City, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we meet musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home in what we affectionately call Upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we welcome producer, promoter, and comedian Eric Vetter. Listeners may know Eric from No Name and a Bag of Chips, the weekly comedy variety show he co-founded and hosts at Word Up Bookstore in Washington Heights and other locations across the city. Now in its 26th year, the show has entertained countless audiences and given the stage to thousands of comics, storytellers, musicians, and performers as they strive to hone their craft. People like Ophira Eisenberg, Tom Shalhoub, Baratunde Thurston, Joanna Parson, Dave Lester, Hurry Kondabolu, and Gabby Cruz. We're going to talk to Eric today about his two and a half decades entertaining New Yorkers and about what the future holds. But first, let me welcome you, Eric, to In What Artworks On Air. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for letting me get past security. I appreciate it. (laughs) You're very welcome. So since the security lets you in and verified everything, how are you doing today in the new normal? How's it going? I'm doing okay. Uh, I feel like I now have a stock answer. This has basically been my answer for the last six months. Today I have my job. Today I have my health. I am thankful for today. And that's about as deep as I can get with that, you know? That's a great thing because it has changed day to day here in New York City. Uh, yeah. it's, we're, what, seven, eight months in now, and uh, it has been a never-ending teeter-totter of emotions, and a lot of people don't have jobs, and most importantly, their health. Uh, yeah. So I'm glad you're alive and kicking, so to speak, and you're here with us, and we're grateful for having you. So 26 years is a remarkable length of time to just survive in comedy, let alone <laughs> to produce a weekly live variety show. So kudos to you. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Um, why don't you take us back to the start? Okay. Little known fact about us, because overall we're little known. We actually began as a sketch comedy group, the No Name Players. Started it with a very dear friend and, and college cohort, Dawn Owens. And at that time in New York... You couldn't walk down the street without tripping over an improv troupe, but no one was doing live sketch comedy. We thought we had a little niche. We liked acting, we liked writing and performing, and we thought we had a comedic bent, so that's how we started. We did well enough that at one point we were named the New York Post Comedy Pick of the Week when they used to do such things. And before you know it, we were looking for a new home. It didn't get us anything, but it's something we could say, you know. And what what happened along the way, Dawn actually went back to grad school to get her master's. We were writing and directing everything. We had a troupe, but, you know, she and I were running the, the thing. And we had talked about doing a variety show format because we knew so many people who were talented and were desperate for stage time. Like, oh, why can't they? So let's provide it. What we decided to do was, while she was in grad school, I was going to host such a show, and I was basically minding the store until she came back, and life happens, and she didn't come back. We're still friends, but she, she's not in that game anymore, and the format just stuck. Well, you were born and raised in Washington Heights in the 80s. Yes. Uh, <laughs> how early did you have your sights set on, was it comedy? Was it acting? Um, it was acting. I went to City College for seven years. One day I'm going to go back and get my bachelor's. But uh, during the time there, I went in with the idea of going into advertising and I discovered acting and that was it. That's what I wanted to do. 
of course, along the way, I also had the unfortunate circumstance that responsible for many bad open mics throughout this country. I had friends who said, you're funny, you should do stand-up. The absolute worst reason you should ever do (laughs) stand-up. I I dabbled in it for a long while. I did well enough to get the occasional paid gigs and stuff, but it wasn't... I loved watching it. It wasn't what I loved doing. I liked the acting and the interacting with other performers and that sort of thing. And because life is funny, I wound up being more of an MC than either of the other two things. And I and I've no regrets. I've had the opportunity to work with some amazing people along the way and and it's just fun watching stuff develop, you know? Yeah. Well, you said stand up and improv were exploding at the time when you started doing the sketch. Was there a stand up and improv scene up in Washington Heights Inwood at the time? Oh, that's you know, it's funny, as long as I've done this for years and years and years, I resisted any overtures, not that there were that many, but more suggestions from people to try and do something uptown because for the longest, there was this, I think we've still got a hint of it, but it, it's not like it was. There, there used to be sort of a mentality of, well, if it was good, it would be downtown. And I just didn't feel like having to butt heads about that. I did eventually get an offer for some decent money to do uh, a show that didn't last for too long, but we brought people in. The Old Piper's Kilt, actually, a very beloved place or whatever. But the problem is, there's not a lot of venues uptown that are naturally suited for it, and venues... Again, this is changing. I mean, a lot of wonderful things are happening around, but for most of my time growing up, you know, the venues were not suited for it, and the, the owners who were willing to take a chance did so with visions of dollar signs in their eyes. And when it didn't instantly materialize into the place being filled with patrons, you know, it takes time to build something, especially with that downtown, uptown mentality. And most places either didn't have or couldn't afford the patience to let it grow. So I'm sorry, your original question is, was there, I wasn't aware of any uptown improv troops. There were definitely stand-ups who were uptown. There were people who did some good shows, made valiant efforts or whatever. And there was some good work done, but basically nothing lasted because the support system wasn't there. Right. So having no venues uptown to really support this, Obviously, people did live uptown. So where did you go to get on stage and do your first gigs? Uh, <laughs> and stand up and, and... Well, there's a couple of routes you can go. If, if you're doing stand-up, of course, you, you hit every possible open mic anywhere in the city as often as you can if you're serious about stand-up. And, of course, the opportunities come to get your head into the established clubs and things. Do you remember your first gig, your first improv slash stand-up? Uh, my first solo, uh, I did an open mic night at the now defunct Catch a Rising Star. And I did well enough to think that I should do it again. And the second time out, I learned I was wrong. I did a third time somewhere. And then again, because life is strange, people of a certain age who were into dance music in the city will remember there was a band called D-Train. And they were really, really hot in the clubs for a while. Uh, You're the one for me with on every, what they would have then termed urban radio station at the time. And they did a concert at City College and I had a friend who was involved in putting that together and invited me to open for D-Train. 
which was great, except it was my fourth time ever on stage. That was a horrible, horrible decision. <laughs> um, oh, man. It was two shows. I managed to squeeze out a few laughs in the first one, and the second one is best not remembered. <laughs> um, but I can say I opened for D-Train, uh, <laughs> which meant something at that time. Which is a lot different than people doing comedy on the D-Train. Well, you know... <laughs> Sometimes it's a thin line, my friend. <laughs> but you know what? It, since you, you mentioned venues, uh, it's interesting. No Name had a very circuitous route to the venues that we work now. We absolutely, absolutely love the three main places that we do shows now. Otto Shrunken Head on the Lower East Side, Word Up Bookshop, very dear to my heart. They're the ones that I wanted to work with them, and they've been an amazing place to do amazing things, Word Up Bookshop in the Heights. And QED in Astoria, which is really struggling under the current circumstances, and I urge anyone who can help any of these places. But QED, I think, is having the roughest time. They really should survive. They do amazing things. But as far as No Name, in the early days, we, we had one kind of regular spot at the West End Gate Cafe, which no longer exists up around Columbia University. And then we were oddly at Don't Tell Mama's, a piano bar, for about three years. That's where we got reviewed by the Post. And then the next place we went, there's a little black box theater in a building that's since justly been demolished. And someone contacted us to do something there. They needed to fill out some space. And I asked them about doing a regular show there. And for, oh, I don't know, must have been a good five, six years after that, we were there every other Saturday night at midnight in the heart of Times Square in a fifth floor black box theater in a building where the elevator frequently did not work. And since our show was free, a lot of times homeless folks came in to sleep for an hour and a half. It was a very strange time, but it was it was an amazing place because they actually gave us the keys to the place. I mean, who does that? It was a resident theater company, and Which they were one? just happy you, what to was, make. What was the name of the theater company? Uh, the Common Basis Theater, uh, run by a woman named Marsha Haufrecht, who is a wonderful actress and director, and they just thought, like, well, make a couple of bucks when the theater wouldn't be in use anyway, and so it was really cool because. Whatever play was going on at the time, when we came in there for our show, that was our backdrop. one point, they were doing a show that the entire play was set in a ladies' room, and they actually set up a sink with running water, a stall with graffiti on there. Uh, I don't know what they did to make that happen, because it was, like, all real. But, like, okay, we're going to stand in front of this ladies' room and do comedy now. I bet it informed that set very well. Like, the set informed your set. What what I used to love to watch, and th this is important, when we started doing the variety f show format, it wasn't just stand-ups, it was mostly stand-ups, but our big thing was we encouraged people to use it as a place where they could play and try out new things. So a lot of times, they didn't even, you know, they'd come with an outline or, you know, ideas or whatever, and what I used to love to watch is the performers come in, see what the set was, and then improvise with that kind of throw away their prepared notes. And there was one time there was a doorway, like downstage center, and one performer just basically two-thirds of her set, she just kept walking through the door and doing a different line when walking through the door. You know, it's very playful, and that's very contagious. 
But after that building was sold, you know, when we had to find a new home, we scrounged around for a long while. It was kind of a running gag that we were closing places. That, that place, uh, the building was knocked down. Mo Pitkin's House of Satisfaction, do you by any chance for I remember it. It's like 20 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess it's getting there now. It was uh, co-owned by Jimmy Fallon, among others. And it was a, a wonderful place. We got there and we were like, hey, we finally landed in a classy place. And they were closed down in about a year. So when you bring down the house, you really literally do bring and down the this house. This is what I'm saying. One reason we love autos is autos is freaking indestructible. We have been at autos. Everything's been fine for a number of years now, but... In our time there, we, <laughs> we've experienced floods. There was a fire there, and they're amazing people, and they're indestructible. That place will be there long after all of us had passed on. So what brought the show Uptown? The thing about Word Up, I presume you know their history. They're pretty amazing. It's supposed to be a pop-up bookshop as part of the Uptown Arts Show. Supposed to be there for three weeks, and at the end of the three weeks, they didn't leave. <laughs> you know, and I was only peripherally aware of them during the art show, but I had seen an article about them when it afterwards, like there was community support for it. Folks wanted it to continue. They were doing it out of an abandoned drugstore, so there was no one who was ready to come in and take over. And good Lord, they created New York miracles and staying there for as long as they did and they eventually got their own place but my thing was when I heard about them it's like it's just a bunch of artists got together and wanted to create this and I saw that they turned it into a miniature golf course one night they had shows their performances and like I want to be a part of that it made me feel like I'll, I'll be hanging out with the other misfits, but like people who are serious about their art, though. You know what I mean? Like, even if the community's not quite ready to accept it, they will. And it's not somebody who will be looking at us saying only 20 people came in and paid a cover tonight. And that made it different. And what I love about Ward Up, you know, I reached out to them and they were very receptive. Uh, Veronica Lou was then as now like point person for that. One thing I insisted on, not that there was any haggling about it, but I wanted to do a show there where there would be a little portion set aside for what I call open stage. People can walk in, do whatever they want to do for five minutes. And what I loved is being able to present folks like Tom Schlue and Carmen Lynch, who was just getting ready to do her first uh, Letterman spot, and Leanne Lord, who'd done like everything. Folks like that... And also have someone who walked in from the community be on the stage the same night, the same bill. And in fact, I vividly remember in their first location, there was a, a guy who was staying in the homeless shelter a few blocks away. And he used to come in and read his poetry, and we would actually bend the rules. Usually the open stage was at the end of the evening, but he needed to get back by a certain time to keep his bed. So you know, we'd get him up there, whatever, and... He shared some very personal stuff, and it was it was really, you know, I've never made his time at any of this, but that made me proud that we could provide a place where this guy who's going through this particular rough journey could share a stage with people who are on television. 
you know? It's been reciprocal. I think Word Up's been great for you, but I think you've also been great for Word Up. You've created this platform for the community to come together in a true variety show. You have all walks of life being able to express themselves in this place. And it's not just comedy or music. It's poetry. It's all forms of expression. So that must raise some very special challenges in creating the show and, and keeping it. Can you speak a little bit about how you've been able to navigate that? If I can, I'd, I'd just like to interject a special thank you to uh, the amazing storyteller and author, Michelle Carlo, because she'd been a friend of ours for years. She used to perform with us at the Midnight Show. In deference to propriety, I would say she was roughly five years old when she did that. But Michelle, when she was first becoming a storyteller, a real storyteller of the, of the quality she had now, she used to do our show a lot. You knew she had something special, and when Word Up first showed up and we started doing shows there, I thought it would be the perfect place to do a regular storytelling edition of the show. You know, I travel through the world of storytellers. I've been fortunate enough to be invited to do a few, but that's not where I live. I just visit there a lot, and I wanted somebody who was completely immersed in there to make sure that we brought in good people and and an interesting variety of voices. And nobody does that better than Michelle Carlo. She agreed to do it. And once a month for, I guess it's at least seven, eight years now, she comes in and she's this force of nature, of energy. And, you know, she's someone who comes out there and you know you're going to have fun. It's going to be a good time. And she just routinely brings in such a wide variety of voices. And I think that's a perfect match for Word Up and what they're trying to do. And I, I just want to acknowledge because she's kind of helped us take the Word Up show to a different level. Many people think that in times of social and political crisis, like now, for instance, comedy is really important because, for example, it can be used to speak truth to power effectively and relatively safely. Do you think comedy comedians and their ilk have a particular role to play right now? <laughs> yeah, Given the energy you're talking about. Well, th- this is the thing, you know, it, it's weird because... Can you remember the last time there was any major political campaign going on that you didn't nightly have access to comics doing stand-up and, you know, what have you on it? I mean, yes, there are the talk shows or whatever, and they touch on it in The Daily Show and things that are vital like that. But, you know what, I, I watched Chris Rock's opening monologue from last week's Saturday Night Live, and it, it's just looking at it because I wanted to see what he's doing. And it was interesting because, like, that's the first time in months I've heard a fresh, real stand-up, not these Zoom shows or whatever, which my heart and my love for everyone who's tried to do a Zoom show, and that's fine. We, we're all doing the best we can in these times, but that's not the same as doing stand-up in front of a live audience in a club or whatever. And it was so refreshing to see that again after a while. I think it's important... The thing with the State Liquor Authority banning socially distanced outdoor comedy shows, I think it's just insane. And I think it's damaging. I don't understand why they've okayed outdoor socially distanced trivia shows, which, by the way, Cambry Cruz pointed out, more often than not, hosted by stand-up comics. I miss hearing those voices out there, and I know I'm not alone. And it's also, you know, it's rough for folks who make their entire living out of this. I mean, 
even the bars now are able to be open in various ways, you know, if they follow the conditions or whatever. And we understand the circumstances are different for everybody and we can adjust and all of that. But to say, I, I forget now, I read the language when the edicts first came down, but I think they only specifically mentioned comedy shows and exotic dancing, which basically nullified my whole act. So it's disturbing. We won't won't say which side you wait more towards. (laughs) Give them what they want. (laughs) Which I think the State Liquor Authority did in my case, but still. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's really rough. And that's why QED is struggling right now. Like, Word Up, they've done a masterful job of creating their online bookshop. And they've found ways and GoFundMe and, you know... And autos, like I said, they're indestructible. They've found ways to do what they can under the current circumstances or whatever, outdoor beverages, order food from a place next door or something like that. But, you know, whatever their setup was. But QEDs, like, they're not... Yes, they sell snacks and wraps and some yummy things, but they're not a restaurant. And they do have a backyard, and they were doing some outdoor shows. I actually went to support one of them, and it was amazing and they're letting diners do shows in their parking lot, but a place like QED had no option but to shut down. They're not receiving financial aid to compensate. You can't take it away from them and offer them nothing in return. I urge folks to reach out to whatever politicians they can reach out to. Of course, now, by the time anything would happen, we're getting to the winter and the game changes again. But it would be a crime if places like QED had to shut down. So here's the million-dollar question, Eric. When does Honest to Goodness Live Entertainment return? And when it does, what will it look like? How do you think COVID is going to leave its mark on a show like yours and venues like the ones you frequent? (laughs) they've been trying to kill us for years and we we won't go away. That's the whole secret. They tell you to go home, don't go home. But as far as real shows in the industry and clubs and things, I think it probably doesn't have a chance to get back to whatever normal will look like until there's a vaccine. I do think we have to adjust as we go along. You know, one thing I love about New York, and I'm really, I'm hoping the numbers don't go back up significantly again because we work so damn hard to do the right things and we've made mistakes but we're doing the best we can and there are other parts of the country that just are not doing what it takes to get to that point so as long as that continues I think the only hope is for the vaccine which I believe will come I'm just wondering how many venues will be left standing at that point for whatever it's worth in terms of the art form it's going to go on It will always go on. It will adapt. And even if the venues where we're used to seeing these things now do sadly close down, they'll be replaced by new ones when when the dust has settled. I just hope that the good ones and and the ones that have really tried to do the right things all along the way will not be among those lost along the way. I agree with you. And for those who don't know, Eric has been incredibly persistent and resilient I just want people to know that you have done quite a lot. You'll be around at the end, I believe, as well. So, Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, what's the best place for our listeners to keep track of future shows and other projects? Follow me on Facebook, and there's a no-name page on Facebook as well. 
which you can find through my Facebook page. We have a website, but it's, let's just say, under construction. That's the easiest version. It will be back, but when it is, I'll mention it on my Facebook page. Well, listeners, you can find those links up on the In What Artworks website. Thanks to Eric Vetter for joining me on this Artist Spotlight episode of In What Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home in Upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. Deep thanks to all here at 809 Restaurant and Lounge in Inwood for hosting us and to HeightSize.com for our local uptown promotional support. Be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Alfresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. You can support On Air and all our programming by making a tax-free donation at inwoodartworks.nyc slash donate. Inwood Artworks is made possible with funding from NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer and the Niska Electronic Media and Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims for Inwood Artworks On Air.